views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Earth Day, 7912.7. In line now for several hours, awaiting the first show of Star Trek The Motion Picture. The box office is open. We are preparing to get our tickets. One, please. How old are you? How old am I? That's right, how old? I'm 12? How old are you? Well, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. What do you mean you can't let me in? Well, after 4 o'clock, you have to be 18 or older, or else accompanied by an adult. Yeah, but this isn't Saturday Night Fever. Star Trek The Motion Picture. It's rated G. Those are the rules. Uh, next, please. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I will give you $10 to let us in. That's my whole allowance. We can't have unsupervised kids defacing the theater and bothering the patrons. You think I would be bothering the patrons? This is my movie! Don't you understand? The human adventure is just beginning. Well, I guess it will just have to begin without you. Now move along, please! There are a lot of other people in fire, line fire. here. No, no, no! Listen, Mark, just calm down. We'll come back tomorrow, okay? There is no tomorrow, and it'll be too late, okay? Think! Strategize! Move! Counter! It's like a game of chess. Yes. Think. Think, think. What would William Shatner do? Well, he wouldn't be standing in line for this film. How could you? The Lawrence Olivier of the Airways be here in Brooklyn. Why would anyone want to be here in Brooklyn if they didn't have to be? You're right. I'm leaving. No. No, really. What are you doing here? I'm not really here. I'm one of the top ten imaginary friends kids have. Just behind John Travolta, Reggie Jackson, and Farrah Fawcett Majors. So are you here to get me into the movie? Have you read the reviews? Listen, kid. At your age... It's time you started solving your own problems. Later, when you're older, they'll get a therapist. So you're saying I should engage my advanced for a 12-year-old intellect and use logic? Logic is the other guy's shtick, but yes. Thank you, sir. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 19, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where we're going to be taking a break from all our problems today, don't you think, Robert? Oh, it's, it's going to be a great time. topic. Sure. Uh, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join us, because we're going to go where no show has gone before, in terms of taking a look at the total series of Star Trek, which is almost an impossibility to do in one show, Robert. It's just not possible. I know. <laughs> um, you know, in preparing for today's show... I pulled out a small box of my Star Trek paraphernalia. And even though I wouldn't consider myself a Trekkie in terms of being a collector of this stuff on purpose, <laughs> I've over the years ended up with all sorts of various Star Trek publications and books. And 
And some I bought, and as the original 22 copies of TV Guide I ended up with, because I had a subscription at the time, so I'm not going to throw them out if they had a Star Trek cover. Are, no you, are you trying to deny the fact that you're a Trekkie yes. by saying that other yes. people gave you this stuff? Well, come no, on. Hey, I just admitted <laughs> to the TV Guide, say. Okay. Uh, now, I've collected newspaper clippings o- over the years about Star Trek and other shows. I just don't do it about Star Trek, but of course that one's going to collect huge. I think it's a very influential show. In- influential show. And, you know, over the various birthday and Christmas gifts I've gotten, I actually have a smattering of books about Star Trek. And listen to some of these titles. Uh, one, I have the authorized biography of Gene Roddenberry called appropriately Star Trek Creator, which was written by David Alexander in 1994, full of interesting facts and, and issues in the background of Star Trek. And most importantly, about the creator of Star Trek, who is Gene Roddenberry, of course. I have a book called The Star Trek Interview Book by Alan Asherman in 1988. I have another one called Boldly Live As You've Never Lived Before by Richard Rabin and Hayagua Cohen, billed as a, quote, unauthorized and unexpected <laughs> book on the life lessons from Star Trek, which was published in 1995. And, of course, you get a lot of books like that, including trivia, games, things like that. But then there, there are those books that illustrate, I think, why Star Trek is different from all the other sci-fi fantasies and why it would become a major subject of our show today. And these show, or and the books that I've got, get, get the title of these, Robert. These are something else. Uh, the Physics of Star Trek, with a foreword by Stephen Hawking, who also appeared, of course, on an episode of TNG. And that was written by Lawrence Krauss in 1995. Another book called The Metaphysics of Star Trek by Richard Hanley in 1997, which was also republished um, with the title Is Data Human? And I somehow ended up with a copy of both, meaning I probably borrowed one from somebody that I haven't returned yet. (laughs) Finders keepers, though, too late. Um, The Ethics of Star Trek by Judith Barrard, Ph.D., with Ed Robertson, published in 2000, with a Canadian cover price of $34.95 hardcover. Yeah, tell me about it. Now, that that last book, by the way, is particularly interesting. I look through the chapter titles, such as, listen to these chapters, Cultural Relativism. Is religion the basis of ethics? Justice in a savage arena. Kirk finds the golden mean. Equity and friendship in Star Trek. And this sounds a lot like the Scottish philosopher John McMurray that I talk about so Mm -hmm. much. He talks about that theme a lot. Here's one. When worlds collide, hedonism versus stoicism. And then there's a section called Christianity and Contracts. And the first chapter under that category is titled Kirk uh, Kirk and Spock battle evil dot dot Christian ethics and refers to those episodes where followers blindly follow some leader. Another one is uh, the Ferengi and the social contract. And under a section called duty, the first chapter is titled duty can be a crusher. <laughs> I wonder what that, that's a play on. Our duty to other species. Uh, honor among thieves and Klingons. Does the good of the many outweigh the good of the few? And here's one for you, Robert. The existentialist conundrum of master and slave morality. (laughs) So you you get the point. Really light reading. (laughs) (laughs) How many other TV shows do you know that would spawn that kind of analysis? Uh, Not many. Um, Certainly not not things like uh, Castle or... No, I don't know, Hill Street Blues even, or anything like that. But even science fiction shows, you know. Well, oh, yeah. science fiction shows in the 60s, Bob, were dead. I mean, they, they, what did you have? Lost in Space, you know, Danger Will Robinson, 
what a load of nonsense, you know, camp. Hey, hey, I'll, they I'll, were camp. That's what well, they were. Camp, yeah. That, that, that's exactly what they were. So, so, you know, I'm looking at all these books in a pile. It reminded me of the books I used to carry around when I was in college and high school. I'm thinking, you know, we could start a course on Star Trek, a university course. I wouldn't maybe. be surprised if there isn't. Yeah, I was going to say, if we haven't been beat to it. But uh, what would it be? Would it be a science course, an arts course, cinema, acting? Uh, would it be philosophy, epistemology, ethics, all of the above, you know? Like, which department would pay our budget? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Obviously, by the sheer volume of written material on the subject of Star Trek, a lot of people have given this a lot of thought. I remember once on this very radio station being asked by Jim Chapman on a past episode of uh, Left, Right, and Center, how does one go about changing public attitudes or changing a culture, particularly uh, since no amount of legislation or laws seem to be doing the trick in terms of what we were talking about that day? I think we were talking specifically about racial intolerance and prejudice. And my answer to him, I remember clearly, was Star Trek. And I made it a much more broad statement. I said, you know, broadly speaking, you change a culture and it's, and it's, you know, it's attitude, moral, political, social, through art and through literature, which is how it's always basically been done. Mm -hmm. And of which television is not only a part of, but is the primary source of, uh, quote, artistic consumption by the public, by by the largest number of people in the public. And so, you know, we we talked about it, and I remember bringing up the point, you know, at a time when the networks were completely hostile to putting non-white actors on the air, Star Trek proceeded to have a truly multicultural crew, all equal to each other and all behaving in a very dignified manner. Uh, The show featured the first broadcast kiss between a white man and a black woman in an episode entitled Plato's Stepchildren. Of course, it was forced. (laughs) Still, uh, the whole thing was forced in in more ways than we can even mention on the show. But this was at a time when the politically correct thing to do was to keep the crew all white. And, uh, and dresses long, by the way. The short skirts were a political protest against the mores of the time. You know, there's people today who think that the short skirts the women wore in Star Trek were sexist exploitation, you know. And yeah, but Michelle Nichols said that that was the liberation. Oh, it was, I think I might have heard her saying something like that, you know. So I'm thinking, boy, how times change. You know, wouldn't you feel sorry for the first really uh, long-term astronauts and space travelers who have to leave for years at a time? Um, we always talk about time dilation, you know, when you're when you're traveling in space. But what about the cultural dilation that occurs? Like you could be gone for 20 years, and you know what was politically correct when you left, and you come back, and everybody thinks different, and you're just an anachronism. You don't even belong to the society anymore. I think I'm a fossil, Bob. Um, but it, it just uh, it just it stunned me in a way and made me think about things that I don't normally think about. But here we are. It's now 43 years into Star Trek's five-year mission, which was launched in 1966, and the mission looks far from over. Uh, Star Trek Three had three seasons, The Next Gen had seven, Deep Space Nine had seven, Voyager had seven seasons, Enterprise had four seasons, there's been 11 movies, including this year's blockbuster, uh, there were the cartoon Star Treks, I think you had some interesting things to say about that a little later. So as you can see by just the brief overview I've taken so far, we could make a whole show or several shows on but a single issue or topic among all the many I've already sampled. Uh, to say nothing about the culture created around Star Trek, from Star Trek conventions to the true fanatics, uh, many of which were featured in two movies called Trekkies and Trekkies 2. Ever been to a Star Trek convention? Oh, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now Go you ahead. know you know that both you and I and uh, and your daughter Danielle went to yeah. a uh, Star Trek convention and 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 my wife at the time and some friends we took along too. Yeah. And you know it was only last week I realized that was you that I went with. <laughs> it was a long time ago. We saw Brent Spiner. Yeah. And the place was absolutely packed. There's oh, I don't know how many people with tens of th- ten thousand more. Um, we were at the airport hotel. I remember that. Yeah. Um, lined up outside. They couldn't even fit people in. It was the first uh, convention held in Toronto, Hmm. and the organizers just didn't get it together. I think Brent Spiner, it was in February too, and Brent Spiner arrived a little bit late. We all had to wait, remember, and you couldn't get up from your seat (laughs) or you'd lose it. uh, But he finally showed up there at the Toronto airport, and he had to be, this, by the way, was in the middle of the uh, next gen when they were still live on the air. Yes. And he was he, he flew into Toronto there. What time would it have been? About four or five in the afternoon by the time he got there, a couple hours late. All the fans waited. He was great, by the way. As I recall, he really had the audience going. But amazingly, he had to be on set at 5 o'clock in the morning putting his makeup on in California. Is that right? Going from that convention and, and gave a lot of... Uh, you know, little insights. You don't remember all the things he was saying, eh? No, my fr- I remember one thing he said, and that it was he was referring to all the crowd that was out there. He said they all looked like raisins on a couch. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what that exactly that means, but the thing was that we, I could hardly even see the guy. He was so far away. Amazing. But uh, so you can see all the issues we can get into uh, with Star Trek and and its its appeal, why it's appealing. I'm going to listen to a clip shortly in a couple minutes where you can hear a lot of people with their opinions on that issue. So Robert and I thought we'd start with a grand overview of Star Trek's philosophical messages and influences, and in the hopes, in the hopes, not necessarily the, the certainty, of ending the show on a positive note, we thought we might start out our theme with some of the philosophical bloopers the show aired, you know, and which keep airing over and over and over again, along with the good stuff. In fact, you know, you almost could say the sheer repetition of the Star Trek series on various TV stations is almost a daily catechism for some people, um, you know, if they're afflicted with that habit. You know, you wonder, are they absorbing the messages to heart? Do they critically analyze them? Are, you know, is Star Trek a religion? Can we even ask a question like that? So these and other compelling questions will be among those considered in today's rather lighthearted but serious look at Star Trek. Now, the voices you're about to hear in these upcoming clips going into the bumper and back for the next uh, three minutes or so are... uh, Peter David, author of Star Trek The New Frontier, Michael Okuda, co-author Star Trek Encyclopedia, another book I didn't mention because I don't have it. Michael Okuda as well was responsible for the look of Next Generation, wasn't he? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Lawrence Montaigne, if I'm pronouncing that correct, he was the character Stan in the Star Trek episode, A Mock Town. Ah, yes. (laughs) Uh, Leonard Nimoy, of course, you'll recognize his voice. Garrett Wang, who played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager. And Franz Nguyen, who played Elan on Star Trek, uh, Elan of Troyes, also appeared with William uh, Shatner on Broadway in the 50s. And uh, so that was an interesting little insight, too. And coming out on the other side of the bumper, we'll be hearing the voices of uh, Denise Crosby, who... who Tasha Yar. Played Tasha Yar and also created the movies uh, Trekkies 1 and Trekkies 2. And uh, Mark Scott Zickrey, who's writer, director, Star Trek, The New Voyages, which is not part of the canon, as you say, but part of the... uh, the amateur ones that are done online. I don't know if you've ever seen some of oh, them. Oh, yes, several. But some of them, the stories are great. I mean, you can tell they're amateur, but some of the special effects are just phenomenal. So here, we'll take this break, and on the other side, we will continue our conversation on Star Trek. Did another Earth ship once probe out of the galaxy as we intend to do? 
What happened to it out there? Is this some warning they've left behind? Your move, Captain. It was a great adventure that was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Deflectors say there's something there. Sensors say there isn't. Density negative. Radiation negative. Energy negative. Whatever it is, contact in 12 seconds. They tried to show space travel as, uh, as, re as, as realistically as they, as they could. And it, and it tried to do justice to the concept of science fiction. My uh, first impression of Star Trek was when it first came out, black and white. Little tiny TV tube set, a little thing like this we had. It was uh, something we never missed. Never missed. Because it was always something to talk about the next day. I mean, did you see what they did? Or did you see what happened? I believe... I'm in love with Edith Keeler. Jim, Edith Keeler must die. The show was story and character emphasis. Today, all these shows that you're seeing are all uh, special effects. Uh, and in those days, we didn't have all these special effects. So they had to come up with something special. And what we were, they were talking about in the original Star Trek was the fact that there were interrelationships between people. Coy has given me his medical evaluation of your condition. He says you're going to die unless something is done. What? At the core of it is the people. And if we lose the people, we don't have the essence of Star Trek. That's what, what Star Trek is about. It's about this family of characters who use the technology uh, to get in touch with human ideas. It's a worldwide phenomenon, if you think about that. I mean, you, you can... It's the only show where you can literally go to any continent and tell they're going to know it, you know? People know it. It's phenomenal, you know, that something has lasted for this length of time. I think it's a testament to, to Roddenberry and his, his, his vision of the future and also his ability to uh, use his show for social commentary, for, for political reasons, for whatever he wanted to get out there. I have a great admiration for Gene Roddenberry. I've never met the man. So, but uh, I really feel that he had a, a vision. He was uh, uh, very much projecting into the future what I think is the, 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 the Greek theater. Thinking are drawn to its sort of inherent positive message that there is a future for us, that the future will be better than it is now. It's a kind of utopian ideal. We live in peace with the full exercise of individual rights. The need to resort to violence and force has long since passed and they will not be tolerated aboard this ship. I think if we have hope for the future, if we see that we can make the future, if we have, that we, if we feel as individuals not powerless, but that we have actual power. And you know, Robert, Star Trek was probably one of the few series anywhere, anytime I ever heard use the term individual rights as they are properly meant to be applied. Yep. And, and in the right context. It means you only use force for defensive reasons. You're there for peace. That's why you have peace. 
And uh, it's just amazing because, of course, that term has been bastardized to mean a more collectivized term now. They call it just human rights. You know, when, and, when you which, talk about uh, that, it was interesting that at the same time that Star Trek was on, you had shows like Gunsmoke, who dealt with things properly but never, ever identified them, not the way that Star Trek did, actually explicitly saying, we're doing these because individual rights matter. And only a show like Star Trek could do that because True. of its nature. Um, actually, that's a point I want to get into a little later. Uh, by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call. You're listening to, of course, CHRW 94.9 FM being broadcast out of the University of Western Ontario. Uh, you know, I think what Star Trek got mostly right philosophically, just very briefly, okay, mostly, not completely, okay, um, was, for example, number one, the Prime Directive, which I thought was Outer Space's, uh, the Federation's version of laissez-faire, because basically they left everybody alone unless there was trouble. Yes. And their job was to keep trade going and, and diplomacy going. That's that's what the proper job of a government would be yes. uh, in, in a free society. I think there was also, with some exceptions, uh, there was always, and this, this bothered a lot of people about Star Trek, it was criticized particularly by a lot of quote-unquote Christians who were maybe not doing it, looking at it the right way, but there was an objection to the existence of deities in general. Uh, I know there's, there's exceptions to that, although religions and customs were almost always respected, and often to the point of political correctness, if you... Uh, you know, two two episodes that I'm reminded of are um, the one who watches the Watchers on mm -hmm. Next Gen, where Picard has to explain to the locals that he's not God, <laughs> <laughs> and neither are any of his helpers and things like that. You know, um, and of course, there's a strict role of the Federation as an instrument of self-defense and the protection of individual rights, which we just heard Captain Kirk mention. And, and amazingly, another thing I like about the series is this: there's this constant debate over whether the good of the many outweighs the good of the one. And in the movie Star Trek 2 and 3, of course, the exact opposite case was made in both movies. Yep. In, in, um, in the second one, it was, well, one, one or the other. However, the premise of, of, of each statement is false, of course, because good is never determined by numbers. And that's the secret to the answer to that question, one why it can end up with a different answer on both sides of that same coin. Another interesting or important thing about Star Trek, I thought, was just the overall concept of a hero, having a hero. And, I have to, and I'm thinking mostly of Captain Kirk. I hate to say it, but as each um, new Star Trek series came on, I think they drifted further and further away from those basic principles, though still had their roots there and couldn't leave them entirely. And uh, one of the first things I hated about Next Gen, I hated that first season, was that it was ruled by committee. I mean, the captain had to have a meeting over everything, right? He couldn't make a decision. And he had to have a counselor. And next a counselor to him. had to tell him he was crazy all the time. You know, I'm going, give me a break. And finally, there was finally a show where he had it with her. You know, he tells her, you know, lay off. Well, yeah, I'm sick of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, finally, somebody said it. But, um, and of course, uh, you know, there's that famous, mostly heroic thing that. Uh, uh, Captain Kirk did in the City of the Edge for, of Forever, where he had to give up the woman he loved to save humanity. Remarkable right? episode. And, of course, uh, Harlan Ellison, the author of that episode, was quite content contemptful of, of what they did to his script because he had Kirk uh, betraying humanity. And, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you can't change the hero. You can't write for a story and change the hero. But, uh, fortunately, they were wise and kept to the hero um, mythology that, that it's all part of. And of course there is the creation of a new legend or mythology platform that Star Trek has created on which they can promote moral principles and lessons, which I think is what 
mostly the series is about. And, of course, another great thing I like is the general emphasis on individualism as opposed to collectivism. And, and you certainly see that best typified um, by the Borg. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's basically my overview. How, how, what about, what's your take on Star Trek in terms of... Uh, Star Trek has been a big part of my life, and you know, entertaining-wise, at least, anyway. But I do recognize, hey, it's just a TV show. But, uh, but my first recollection, Bob, of Star Trek, you wouldn't believe this now, when I was about six or seven years old. Now, this would have been actually around probably the time when it was first aired, in 66, 67. My first recollection was that it wasn't a philosophy, and it wasn't a depiction of the positive future or heroes or adventure. It was being frightened, as a six-year or seven-year-old, at the image of Balok in the Corbomite maneuver. Oh, really? Remember that image? The guy image? with the big head. The yeah, guy with the big green head and a shimmering screen. He looked like some sort of gorgon or something. Sure. <laughs> just, just, I, have, I, remember, I think I had a nightmare over that thing. But, um, you know, despite being that, it was like that first shock. I, I was an avid fan of the show since it first aired, and I've been, uh, I've seen every episode of the original, so too many times to count, Bob, I tell you. But as I grew up, it began to be, you know, just as much critic of the show as a fan. When you start to develop your own ideas and all that, sure, it was great entertainment, projecting a positive sense of life into our homes on an almost daily basis. Uh, but once it became, it once became syndicated, I mean, it was, it was on every day. But it was also full of contradictions, philosophical errors. And as after, <clears throat> after a TV show and the writers are just that, they're writers. They're not philosophers or great intellectuals necessarily, but they're writers with the goal to entertain and to sell a script. Well, I, I'm almost thinking a good writer has to be a, a, a understand philosophy. Well, and they certainly can, the better ones do. Let's they can be both, way. but they're not yeah. professional philosophers. They're not well, Ayn Rand, that's for no, sure. That's... <laughs> You know, so, so well, she found... wasn't a professional philosopher either. She was actually a writer. That's true. She made a writing from... And, it, and <laughs> in fact, right. she, as a writer, that was how she, she felt that philosophy had to be spread, through, through movies. And she was hoping a lot of her... Right. Uh, they still haven't made Atlas Shrugged. It isn't going to happen. I think but the difficulty <laughs> came when uh, you, you get a whole lot of different writers. Because, you know, Star Trek is not simply written by one person, yes. directed by one person, uh, even though it may have been created by one person. Uh, you're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of people have had their hands into those scripts, from the actors to the writers to the directors to the producers. Everyone had a sort of a, a hand in the creation of that product. So there's, got, there's bound to be contradictions and philosophical errors. Now, some of the more glaring errors and contradictions involved the show's treatment of deities, which you've already sort of touched on there. God and religion featured prominently in many of the episodes of, Star, of the Star Trek canon. Uh, the second pilot to the series, where no man has gone before, had crewman Gary Mitchell developed the powers of a god only to be killed off by Kirk. So right from the very beginning, God featured prominently in religion, featured prominently in Star Trek. In one episode, remember, Kirk himself fancied himself a god, Kirok when he lost his memory among the tribe of the North American Indians. In all, there are dozens of encounters with gods. The Bajorans have their prophets, and Captain Sisko being their emissary. The Jem'Hadar and the Vorta regard the founders as gods in Deep Space Nine. And don't forget they ran into Apollo himself. Oh, that's true. In the original episode, <laughs> yeah. you had Apollo, but uh, he was sort of explained away. We don't need those kinds of gods yeah. anymore. They've moved he on. He had technology. Yes, And so right. did Q. Q was thought to be, you know, godlike yeah. powers. He he could do anything, you know, just like what we would assume a god can do today. But well, he was ex explained away. In fact, the first episodes, I'm not too sure if I can say this of Enterprise. I'd have to think twice about that one. But certainly the other four all had a godlike theme in their first episodes. 
Hmm. Um, Next Gen, they met Q. Yes. Uh, in Deep Space Nine, they went into the wormhole with the, uh, the, prophets. the prophets who were godlike yes. and, and certainly were treated as such by the Bajorans. Uh, which, by the way, I still consider the best episode of Deep Space Nine was the first one. I, I hate to say it had the best script, the best acting in terms of everyone in it. was a it. good show, yeah. And I thought I had held great hope for that series, and, and it just kind of dropped. But it had its it had its good time, too. Yeah. And uh, we can talk about that later. I didn't mean to interrupt you on Oh, that's that quite yet. all right, Bob. Yeah, just, oh, gods are everywhere. So I remember the Edo of Rubicon 3. <laughs> Probably <No>. not. <laughs> <laughs> they were... They were worshipped as an orbiting life form as their god. Remember where Wesley trips over a bush and he has to have the death penalty imposed on him because... Oh, oh never mind. <laughs> I'm just... Okay. Where they had that absolute law. Right. The life form considered yeah. the Edo its children protecting and caring for them. The Klingons killed their gods, according to the canon, because, as uh, quote, they were more trouble than they were worth. <laughs> <laughs> the Starship Voyager was considered a god itself, called the ground shaker, to the uh, Kelamane, who offered its fruit, if only it would stop shaking the ground. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Ep- that's, that was a good episode. That was a I, remarkable I really liked episode. that episode. Yeah. In fact, um, I don't know if you recall, but the pilot who came up from the planet to mm-hmm. visit them. He played on Lost. He was the... Yes, um, the Asian character. The Asian character. I can't remember his name, but... Uh, he the guy played... who couldn't speak English, was it? Yes. Yeah. And um, it's been a while since I watched Lost. And uh, But I know he was in that show, and it was really weird to see him there because you, you look back and you see who was in these older yeah. shows who became famous later in some other way. A lot of people lot wanted of people. to be on Star Trek because it has such a, a, lasting, a cultural resonance throughout, yeah. you know. Uh, for example, Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. dying to be on, on Star Trek Next Generation, asked to be on it. And she worked for uh, the lowest rate, too, to do that oh, did show. did she? She yeah. worked scale, did scale. she? Scale, ah. yeah. But just to get back to that God thing, remember the Bread and Circuses episode? The yes. crew find themselves on a world identical to Earth where Rome never fell. Some of the inhabitants... 20th century Rome they had. Yes, yeah. they had 20th century Rome with uh, television and all that. And some of the inhabitants described themselves though as sun worshippers. And we were led to believe that they were actually deifying the sun in the sky. But as the show ends, though, remember Uhura let the captain know that it wasn't the sun up in the sky that they worship, but the son of God... And quoting uh, Dr. McCoy, is a philosophy of total love and total brotherhood. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know where he got that notion, but if you I ask me... I can tell me, you exactly where from the 1960s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me which I would rather worship, Bob, the sun in the sky or the Abrahamic God in whose name millions have been killed and tortured to this day, <laughs> I'll take the sun in the sky, please. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hey, Robert, we're at the bottom of the hour, unbelievably. Um, Got to take a quick break for some ads and some messages, but also what you're going... I, I didn't mention, by the by the way, that those clips you heard before were mostly from the Star Trek 40th anniversary show that was um, broadcast three years ago, because it's 43 years now. And um, I think these are also from that uh, special, although I've clipped in some things from other sources as well. The voices you're about to hear before the break are uh, Michael Reeve, who's a r- writer speaking on uh, Star Trek on the 40th anniversary. Also Jolene Blaylock, who uh, was appearing on Enterprise. And coming out of the, at the other side of the, the ads in the bumper, we'll be hearing from uh, George Takai, Michelle Nichols, and William Shatner. So we'll leave that with you, and we'll continue after this. The thing that people respond to most to Gene's vision of Star Trek was that it was a hopeful future. It was a future in which, you know, we don't go down in flames, but we actually rise to and, and overcome our problems and get out there in the universe with, you know, beneficent intent. 
and search for knowledge, search for new, you know, races and all that. And I think people respond a great deal to that. Captain Kirk, you did not kill. Is this the way of your kind? It is. We fight only when there's no choice. We prefer the ways of peaceful contact. I speak for a vast alliance of fellow creatures who believe in the same thing. We have sought you out to join us. It's the world coming together and what can we accomplish together and what can we learn from each other and our different backgrounds and our different um, culture. frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I never dreamt that we'd be celebrating the 40th anniversary of uh, Star Trek. Uh, went on the air September 8, 1966, and we're still talking about Star Trek. After all these years, nothing surprises me anymore, especially about Star Trek. It just keeps growing and growing. Star Trek resides everywhere, and, and, and we don't know why. Welcome back to CHRW 94.9, where you're listening just right with Robert Vaughn and Bob Metz. And you can find us on the Internet at just write chrw or sorry just write media.org or email us at just write chrw at gmail.com and before we uh, had the break we were talking about star trek and the god concept mm. and um if anything bob these little morality plays uh certainly would make a person reconsider their notion of the god concept and i believe that star trek or more correctly, the writers for Star Trek, are probably responsible for a great percentage of atheists in this world. If not atheists, then certainly a great number of either skeptics or free thinkers, and certainly scientists. A remarkable accomplishment for a TV show. If only the writers had a better grasp of the concept of capitalism. Well, that's, that's true. <laughs> Their first attempt to portray what they regarded as a race of pure capitalists was the Ferengi, an ugly, goblin-like, squat race of deceiving, conniving, untrustworthy con artists who brandished whips and kept their women naked and at home. Sound like any capitalist you know about? I don't know. <laughs> Around the same time, Bob, we had Captain Picard declare that Quote, people are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things, he said disgustingly. Yeah. We have eliminated... Meanwhile, meanwhile, almost every other episode is about somebody obsessed with the accumulation of things. <laughs> right. He says, we have eliminated hunger, want, and the need for possessions, unquote. But from what I saw, Bob, Picard possessed a lot of stuff. No kidding. From the clothes on his back to a, a saddle, of all things. Well, not only that, I would say that the Enterprise itself was a rather notable possession. No, no, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. piece of property worth something there. <laughs> Apparently, although everybody in the 24th century was on the dole. Yeah, they all worked for credits and worked for nothing and were just given things for free. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, once uh, Star Trek contradicts itself again in Deep Space Nine when we see the Federation actually use the system, as you say, credits. 
and the crew aboard DS9 and the Ferengi and other species use gold-pressed latinum to trade with. So, I don't know. There's the contradiction. Sure, they have again. money, and they play poker all the time. They oh, sit and yeah. play in cards. What are they doing? Uh, just, just for fun? Do you ever have a game of poker just for chips? Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Real <exciting>. fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm nitpicking on Star Trek, but sometimes when a great show like that comes along, you expect perfection. And you forget that thousands of different people from all kinds of philosophies and backgrounds came together over the last 40-odd years to create this epic. Uh, it couldn't be perfectly consistent. But to continue, some of the things you might think we would all agree on, and I have my doubts about, but what about the Borg? Nasty, right? Who would want to be a Borg? Well, really, if you think about it, the, the only thing about the Borg which was frightening was their lack of choice when it came to being assimilated. You know, mind you, that's a, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> but after that, if you get beyond that, you know... I want to be assimilated. I was thinking saying? the other day when I went and bought a Bluetooth earpiece for my cell phone so as not to run afoul of the new law on handheld devices while driving, that we as a culture appear to be getting closer and closer to the technology of the Borg. We wear glasses, at least I do, to improve our vision. We have headphones to talk to almost anyone in the world at any time. We have prosthetic limbs, cochlear implants, artificial hearts. Oh, and now in Canada, Bob, the Kindle, which allows us to carry a good chunk of the total knowledge of our species in our pockets. In many cases, at least, with the Bluetooth uh, airpiece while driving, resistance is futile. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to say nothing... Or you'll be fined. <laughs> and, and nanotechnology is uh, something... That's the first time I ever heard oh, about yes. it. It was in Star Trek, and I, th I thought... I said, okay, that's over the top. That's stupid. That'll never happen. I find out it's already happening. Oh, it is, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, I don't have the reference in front of me, but... Um, with respect to many of the gadgets and the, and the inventions you see on Star Trek... Um, with a few exceptions, of course, like warp drive and beaming, okay? Like yes. Those are obvious, perhaps fantasies, totally. Yeah. Um, but most of the technology on Star Trek, as we see it demonstrated, is outdated within three, three to five years after the making of the show. All I had to do was look at my cell phone and know that. And, and did you see, uh, if you look at the old Star Trek, um, the first series, when you see the clock counting back, it's one of those little rotation, <laughs> <laughs> like, odometer in your car. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, they kept calling, even though they had flat discs in their hands, they kept calling them tapes. Tapes, yeah. <laughs> I have a tape. I'm going to put the tape in, and it's a flat disc. And we've even <laughs> gone way back we're even past discs now for the most part oh yeah they're uh, they're, they're they're falling out of uh, out of favor just before i forget bob there's another contradiction i wanted to bring up mm -hmm. remember the uh uh the, the the episode called the savage curtain in the original episode where they had an abraham lincoln that was a hard one to watch but you know he calls uhura a charming negress yes but is ashamed when he realizes that he might have offended her she replies that people in her time have learned not to fear words. And yet, Captain Picard gets a dagger through his heart in the episode Tapestry where he takes on a Nausicaan for calling him a coward. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a different word. Oh, oh they're right, yes. Yeah, so we're not, we, if they call him a negress, yeah. <laughs> that would be different. Oh, dear. I, I mean, didn't he watch the original series before he joined Starfleet? I don't know. I, I was even wondering why... why Lincoln would have said that in the first place because yeah. he came from a different time where he wouldn't have reacted that way. He was already quite politically correct. But of course, what was the story really about? They were preaching a lesson. That story, if you strip the silliness of it away, was trying to talk about basically the philosophy between using force and using cooperation right. to get along. Actually, it sort of worked in that it show. Did. 
you know, but uh, well, I'm just I'm just picking <laughs> on it. You know, I could go on about picking on Star Trek. I haven't even mentioned Spock's brain. <laughs> and it's too late. Just it, it, he's mentioned it now. Oh yeah. <laughs> all I have to do is say Spock's brain, and everybody out there should know what I'm talking about. Yeah. At least anybody who knows about Star Trek. Uh, you know, all in all, there's been 726 episodes of Star Trek, if you include the animated series, over 30 seasons. There have been 11 feature films, if you include Star Trek V, which I try to want to forget. Yeah. And if you sat down and watched everything Star Trek from the cage to the latest film, watched it 24-7 and didn't take a bathroom break, because after all, there are no toilets on the Enterprise, you would spend over 30 days glued to that tube. 30 days. <laughs> Everyone, like myself and you too, Bob, who have seen all the episode at least once, are going to be altered by what we see. We have to be. Some for the better and some for the worse. It's no doubt, but you know, great entertainment. But in the immortal words of William Shatner, Bob, we should really both get a life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, th I think I think philosophy is about life. So watching Star Trek is an important part of that life. I disagree with Shatner there. By but, the way, but, I don't think he wrote that little no, skit on that Saturday Night Live. But it was funny because, of course, as with all movements, including Ayn Rand for that matter, there's a cult that develops somewhere. There's always that fringe element that takes it to the literal extreme. Yeah. And a lot of people are doing it for fun. Come on, you go to those conventions, those people aren't anywhere near believing in the stuff of they're course. doing. Okay? It's just entertainment. They're it's having fun. fun. It's like a Halloween Halloween night out. Sure, you know, you put on a costume, you act a little silly, and etc., etc. Well, we can get a little silly right now. It's about quarter to two right now, so we're going to take a quick break. And what you're going to hear next, again, are uh, two familiar voices. Uh, the first one, Jolene Blaylock, and the second, Jerry Ryan, probably the two hottest women to show up on the Star Trek series, which uh, indicated a change in, in the direction for the series, too, because they never emphasized that sexuality very That's much in true. the early series, even if it was... Uh, a part of certain plots, you know, and uh, and well, I'm not going to tell you what we're coming into on the other side of this. We'll let you figure that one out yourself. But when we come back from this, uh, we should we shall continue our conversation. Gene Rodenberry had a concept when he first came out with the original Star Trek. He wanted to nurture our imaginations. He wanted, I mean, I mean, the dangers of illusion. And, and, and the worlds that we hold in our, in our minds, and what we can create. It wasn't just about, you know, um, you know, the good guy and the bad guy. It was, there was such a bigger picture. And that is what we're trying to follow in, in, in Enterprise. I speak for the Borg. I think the Borg, the whole aspect of the Borg about the lack of individuality feeds into particularly Americans' um, Fear of autonomy. Not that you guys don't have the same you know, opinion. But I'm not Canadian. I can't tell your opinion. Um, no, but I... That's one thing that I know most of us hold very, very precious, is our independence and our individuality and our freedoms to do what we want to do and to feel what we want to feel and to express what we want to express. And that's... That lack of the Borg is, is what I think makes it so fascinating for us and so scary. summer school for about uh, 10 years now. I specialize in Klingon language studies. Maj Bahasta Dutch. 
Much Miss Roy. I find the Klingon language beautiful and expressive. The words are very poetic. How much for these apples? The I can be strict, but I just want them ready for the real world. Yeah, she's tough, but it's because she cares. In Klingon culture, it's important to exercise the body as well as the mind. I'm very proud of my graduates. They're in demand at conventions, seminars, and children's parties. <laughs> Teaching Klingon culture is a lot of hard work, and you have to make many sacrifices. But at the end of the day, if I have changed one person's life for the better, that is a small price to pay. And for those who didn't understand that, she said, I'm proud to speak Klingon. <laughs> what a silly little skit. I saw that on the Space Network a few years ago. I just fell on the floor laughing. It was so funny. Here is this sweet little old lady with gray hair in front of this class of Klingons, these big guys, you know, teaching them, teaching them how to fight, too. And it was a pretty funny skit. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I look at Star Trek. Of course, a new movie has recently come out. I don't know if you caught this in the free press the other day. No, Robert I haven't seen it. that, but I've seen the movie, of course. Yeah, I've, I've seen it too. November 17th, London Free Press, boldly going back to the beginning, writes Bruce Kirkland in, in um, the November 17th Free Press, talking about J.J. Abrams, uh, who has produced one of the best action thrillers and one of the best sci-fi movies of 2009. And um, he says even cast members from the original franchise are on board the new Enterprise. Uh, the 2009 Star Trek cost $150 million to make, earned $385 million already by the time this was printed. And interestingly, when they talked about Gene Roddenberry, they, they, they went right into the faith thing again. They said Roddenberry had great faith in what humanity could accomplish, which I think has a different meaning than, than how faith is often applied. And that was Leonard Nimoy referencing Roddenberry's penchant for infusing a Star Trek universe with stories that spoke to the highest impulses of the human race, as Bruce Kirkland put it. And interestingly enough, I saw the movie... And I found this observation interesting. Um, Kirkland writes that Abrams went as old school as possible in his special effects. The paradox of the digital age is that things look more real and more cinematic when decades-old filming techniques are employed. So wherever possible, he avoided um, computer graphics. <laughs> and they employed miniature and matte shots and other in-camera techniques instead of computer graphics. He personally jiggled the cameras for a sense of action, which I think might have been an idea borrowed from, from Firefly because they were using that, that technique. Cinema uh, verity. Yeah, when, when uh, Joss Whedon was producing that show. And he says, the results are not, not just spectacular to witness, they are organic. This version of Star Trek begins a whole new cycle for the franchise. Would you agree with him, Robert? I love You've that movie, it. Bob. Yeah? I, I thought it was a cinematic ma masterpiece, at least. The casting was spot on. 
for I, all the characters. I, I had no problem with the cast. Not a person yeah. I objected to. I mean, you're talking about um, messing with a cultural icon in Kirk and Spock and McCoy and, and Scotty, and, and they actually got the perfect actors to play those parts as the young their young counterparts. It was a great show. Um, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I could see a lot of the influence, believe it or not, of the amateur versions that they did online. You could see, because Gene Roddenberry the Jr. Voyages. was involved with them, and you could see that they were working on techniques of special effects and things like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if a few of the cast members there were, were extras on the set and things like that. I'm no noticing a lot of familiar faces. Um, but you know, I agree with everything you said. I think uh, the movie was flawless in many respects. You had a problem, though, with morality, well, just, didn't you? Just the minor. I, to me, the clunker was uh, that the movie really had no moral lesson or major philosophic point to make, which maybe mo was not necessary yet at this point, okay? But, um, but at the very end of the movie, they do get to one point, and I couldn't believe what was said, and that was when Spock speaks to Spock. Don't, don't explain if, <laughs> if you don't understand that, but the older Spock speaking to the younger Spock, because you can do anything in Star Trek. And he tells him to, quote, have faith, put aside logic, do what feels right, he says to him. And, you know, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, that's not a thing Spock would say, because it wasn't faith he was speaking about at all, I don't think. Because both he and Kirk had already had knowledge of future events, you know, which is a fantasy in any case, but let's accept that, you know. Um, meaning that no one was really acting blindly, which is what usually is meant by faith. Even the young Spock, I, and I paid attention to this, he had no knowledge of the future, but he'd already acted on faith, quote-unquote, by this point in the movie when he took control of the future Spock spaceship. If you recall, he got into it and it started operating on his commands, yes. right? But he was operating on logic. He himself had no knowledge of the future, but he knew that Kirk did, right? Because he spoke to him and he said, you, you know something I don't know, right? He says that to him, so he knows that. So logically, he concluded that his risk in trusting Kirk was low to nothing. That's the kind of faith he had, not, not to be illogic and insane and, and do anything that just feels like that. So to me, if there was a valid message in what Spock said to Spock, and that sounds funny, it wasn't about abandoning logic and acting blindly. It was about trusting your friends and those who have demonstrated that they care about you. And the young Spock had already done that before his older counterpart tried to impart that lesson to him. So, you know, consider if it had been uh, illogical to trust Curse. Kirk, uh, say, based on Kirk's previous inconsistencies and failures, right? Uh, which did not occur in this movie, right? He proved himself each time. But assume he was just wacko and he, he, he follows him blindly anyway. You can't do that. The logic is there all the time. And, um, you know, it, so to say that to me sounded a little not logical. I think all feelings, our emotions in particular, are the consequence of what and how we think. Not, a, not about an abandonment of that They're process. They're not a primary, yes. That's right. But you know so something that was that was such a minor thing, and it could be taken so ambiguously, mm. right? It could mean what I said. It might mean something else, and of course, they might flip that whole uh, philosophy the next on the next episode, like they did with the two movies, where they were talking about uh, the good of the many versus the good of the few. Right. There's, remember what what was I talking about during the show? The contradictions of Star Trek. And remember, on one episode they say the good of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and the other one they say the needs of the the few outweigh the needs of the many. Sometimes, so yes. when he's talking without about really faith, without really qualifying them or saying why, no, and that's know? not necessarily yeah. their purpose. You know, that's why these people write these books. Sometimes they can have a movie out there just to be a rip roaring adventure, which is great too. They don't have to necessarily get into philosophy, but when they do, it's interesting that we expect them to be correct all the time. 
Um, I don't, but I'll tell you, when they do leave the philosophic realm, they leave that quality which makes Star, Star Trek, Trek Star longe- yeah. gives it its longevity. That's true. Um, there are a lot of great shows that um, were great entertainments but do not last through time because the thing that lasts through time is Aristotle and Plato. Yes. And if you look at um, Star Trek, you could almost rip parts out of the Bible, out of Shakespeare, out of philosophy from Aristotle to Plato. Um, as um, one of the commentators, I think it was Franz Noyen, was saying that you know they projected Greek theater mm-hmm. into the future. And that's really what we're seeing. I think that's why uh, um, probably William Shatner was a great selection for the first Captain Kirk because he had all that Shakespearean, Shakespearean uh, expertise. Yeah. And Same with Picard, by the way. Yes. Uh, very important to be able to act that way. And uh, I know we were talking about this uh, earlier, the, the amateur series that are online. I don't know if you can still get them because they make them kind of hard to get. Um, uh, online, yes, you can still get them. You can? <laughs> Not legally, but you can still get well, them. Well, but they do have a legal site that you normally go to, but they only keep them up for so long. They were actually um, put out on both VHS and DVD. Was oh, that right? Yeah, and if you have the wherewithal, you can download them. Well, the one thing I found internet. found in there was... You know, you, you can see the amateur acting, and you and you sense it, but you get over it quick because the special effects are good and the stories are generally good. But in all of those, they usually had a um, a guest star from the original. That's right. From the original series, who would appear yeah. in almost every one, including some of the major stars. And the one thing that I always noted, I used to always blame it on poor special effects, on maybe bad equipment or something like that. You know, you get that amateur hollow feeling. Uh, no, when the professionals got on the screen, man, oh man, it was a different story. You could tell these guys were actors. And all of a sudden, their role became that much more believable, even though they're sitting on the same set with the amateurs. The amateurs, um, it's almost a form of overacting that makes it work. You know, it's, it's, um, I remember, too, that you, know, you go to a photographer sometimes if, if, if you want professional pictures taken. Yes. Uh, they pose you in what you call unnatural positions, but they, but they look very natural on the screen. And um, or on on a picture or whatever, but uh, that's just how it works. There's nothing very natural about film filming. And, and uh, if you've ever been in front of a camera, one of the first things you know is everybody seems a lot closer to each other than they really are, or further. I forget which, but you have to compensate, you know. And, and it's very unnatural. What you're trying to say is that acting is a skill, it's and a these skill. new voyages, the amateurs really stand out as amateurs, and and the professionals stand out as professionals. That's right. Would you would you classify a, um, Star Trek as a science fiction or a fantasy? Well, it has elements of both. I w- uh, both. I wouldn't put it into any particular category. I mean, sure, there's elements of fantasy to it, but remember, all of the aspects of the science part of that fiction have inspired a lot of people to be scientists. Remember that they they named the first and space shuttle. Yeah. They named the first space shuttle the Enterprise, and had the crew of the, uh, and Gene Roddenberry and the crew of uh, Star Trek there for its rollout. It's because that show inspired people to be scientists. So there's elements of science fiction and elements of fantasy. Yeah, you know, for me, the the, the distinction is that uh, science fiction is sort of based more on a consistent reality that follows laws of causality. Yes. You know, and on logical and probable expectations, perhaps, of some future technological development. Whereas fantasy, I think, is based on inconsistent realities. Magic. And magic, and it contradicts laws of causality. Right. And so, uh, you know, I find it weaker just because of that fact. It's um, 
Uh, it doesn't mean I dismiss fantasy movies, but uh, you know they have this inherent weakness. And if I can suspend my disbelief, if I know what the rules are in advance, you know I don't mind. Uh, certainly, the fantasy elements are uh, beaming and faster than light, as far as we know now. But if I know what the rules are, I can ride this ride the stories out as long as they don't change them or pull a rabbit out of that. You have hat to suspend your end. disbelief, and yeah. after you do that, the show's great. Well, I hope we managed to suspend everyone's disbelief for today's show, um, because it certainly was a departure from what we normally do, or, although maybe not, because um, we like to talk about philosophy from many points of view, including looking at entertainment, which we'll do later. I'm sure we'll be doing more on Star Trek in the future, but maybe focusing in on uh, some more very specific aspects of the show. What do you think? Oh, you could you could spend hours talking about that show. Days, days. Well, our hour is up, and we've got to get out of here now, I think. Hey, Bronwyn, let's go, and we'll just have to invite everybody to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, you be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Live long and prosper. Color, color into black and white Under the bad clothes Everything will be Mark, what are you doing here? I thought you were supposed to go to that movie, that Star Trek movie. Oh, Mom, how many times do I have to tell you? Track is where the train runs on, okay? Trek is what the Enterprise goes on, uh, okay? Huh? Yeah, and they say the pain of childbirth ends with labor. Mom, you do not understand.